You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 31. Where the Wild Things Are. From the travel log of Raven, somewhere in Mississippi, July 18th. The journey back to the garrison at Vicksburg was a somber and quiet affair. None of us were relishing the anticipation of looking those people in the eyes and telling them we'd killed all their teammates entrusted to our cause and could we please use their telegraph. We were running low on everything, but specifically wood for the furnace. When we stopped near sundown to rest and refuel, it was on a plateau which led all the way up to a great cliff beyond which, hundreds of feet below us, the land was spread out. Major Butler and the tiger stepped off into the trees of the nearby expanse of forest to chop and gather wood. I sat and listened to the wind and the wildlife as the crickets chirped. Something was about to happen. Butler. Prow and I worked swiftly. I chopped. She carried back and forth with Steamheart's barrow. Upon her third return, she paused and her nose went up. What is it? I asked, using what sign language of hers I had committed to memory for emergencies. Animals, she signed back. Many animals. There was a degree of subtle nuance with which she used this word, the sign of which was two downturned paws pushed alternately out in front to indicate walking on all fours. When she said it, she meant wild creatures, though I had pointed out a while back that not only was she an animal, but that I was one too. She had scolded me with a paw on the head and expressed that I knew what she meant. Then she signed two paw pads flickering over her palm to indicate walking, bipedal, intelligent animals who wore clothes and made fire. That was us and her. Now she looked at me and, with her nose twitching, made the two front paws and the two-legged walking sign. Human. Animals. And she flared her eyes wide and pantomimed gnashing her teeth while ripping at flesh with her claws. The actions she had used while storytelling to express terrible monsters from her world. Steamheart. Now. We charged back, leaving the nearly full barrel behind. She scooped me up and bounded faster through the remaining tree line. We emerged to the team setting up the campfire. Wendigo's coming fast. I panted and waved everyone inside. As Abigail and James cleared the hatch, I could hear our pursuers, and by the time Raven pulled himself through, leaving me the last person outside, I could now see them coming. A swarm of former humans, unclothed, rushing through the ferns, orange eyes flared in the sunset. James. Harry kicked the pedals and shouted to us all. This is going to hurt! Steamheart jerked into life and wheeled around. Thumping sounds were heard as the Wendigos reached us. Up above our heads, we could hear pounding. They were looking to crack our shell. The world lurched as Harry thundered us forwards. We bounced and juddered as Wendigos went under the tires, and as she swerved to escape them, I could see more charging out of the forest. I found myself grabbing hold of Abigail's hand. Can you get to the road? She shouted towards the cockpit. I'm trying. Harry yelled back. They keep blocking the way. I can't get no momentum, and if I go near them, we'll get more up on top. There was a wrenching sound, and the lights around us flickered. Oh, God. They've got to the cables. Head up towards the cliff, Sparks. Annie commanded. See if you can spin us enough to throw them off. 
We careered up the track, weaving this way and that. Every glance out of the portholes brought more sights of nightmarish oncoming infected. There was a grinding sound now. They're clogging the axles! Harry screamed. And the hydraulic lines are pierced. We're, we're slowing down. I pictured savage, cunning, clawed hands thrusting into every crevice in our armor. The crunch of bones as they jammed our mechanisms. This was absurd and flew in the face of everything we knew about their powerful instincts for self-preservation. As an attack, it seemed horribly calculated. I saw two of them crawl down to the windshield where it had been repaired and start scraping and heaving at the reinforcements, beating their elbows against the glass. This was a nightmare. We were going to die. Butler and Oakley had been firing through the rifle slats, but we were moving so erratically that even with Raven and Abigail holding them steady by the waist, their aim was suffering. This was when Harrow cranked the handle of the rear hatch in the last carriage. Hurrah! Annie cried. What are you doing? Fight! She roared back in English, then waited on the captain's permission. Oakley looked at Miguel, then Harrow, and nodded. Okay, I understand. Just keep them off of us and, and try to scare them away. Harrow paused to turn and hold a paw to the side of Miguel's face as something passed between them. Then she threw the hatch open, kicking away two wendigos that attempted to clamber through and hurled herself out, slamming it behind her as she went. Miguel, my heart pounds, my eyes are wide, the Nahual are here at last and none of us can repel them, except for her. As she leaves, she signs to me. I'll come back. Then she leaps out into the air, drawing her spears and vaulting up to the roof of Steamheart. We hear the impact of her spring and a clatter of rapid contact up there. Sprays of scarlet blood rain down past the windows, along with the severed bodies of those creatures. She will see them as the Teru, the savage monsters of her stories. She faces them now to protect us from those nightmares. As we watch, and Harry brings the machine around in a slow, staggered arc, the Nahual swarm across the grasslands towards us, and Harau dives from above and bounds to meet them. She has displayed her abilities to the rest of the humans in brief, spectacular demonstrations with no opponents, and she has played with Abigail to make the lady feel better about herself. But this is the first time they bear witness to what she can truly achieve with her body and her fighting spirit. A graceful pattern is carved through the oncoming horde, spinning and dodging, her blades whirling and separating heads from shoulders, legs and arms from bodies. There is no anger. This is pure evasion and dismemberment. Annie and Butler aid her by shooting out the Nahual to the sides, and every new one approaching from the forest, leaving Harau clear to deal with the pack. To begin with, it seems like she will defeat them all easily. But little by little, she tires and makes mistakes. They get closer and she is struggling. My knuckles are white with tension as I will her to be victorious. Then the first bite is taken from her arm. I cry out. She was already painted with splashes of their blood. But her howl of pain was felt by me. Then another bite comes. And another. 
She reels back, looking for a place to breathe. They scratch at her exposed arms, her legs, and at her beautiful face as the tears stream down my own. James attempts to coerce me to look away, but I cannot. I cannot see anything but her. I cannot hear anything but her gasping growl. None of the Nahual approach us anymore. It is all about tearing her to pieces now. She fights on, her strength redoubled, ignoring the shock, brutally kicking them away, smashing their skulls against the rocks. They pile on top of her, but she claws her way out, hacking, tearing, breaking, biting now, until only three remain. They circle the tiger, looking for a moment of weakness. She stumbles, and they leap in for the kill. But Haroun knows these animals now, and had anticipated this response. Her faltering turns into a hurricane. As she kicks her body off from the ground, her spears arcing through the air to cleave a pair of heads off and slice the last one clean through his waist, severing the spine. She lands amid a shower of falling body parts and remains the only one in this scene of devastation, still drawing breath. She is covered in blood, dazed, badly wounded. Rao looks right at me. I sign through the window, my hands trembling. Are you all right? She shakes her head. I managed to control my panic. Rao had done her dreadful work. The coast appeared to be clear. But what did the blood and infection mean for this species? Were we to lose our dear companion? As I stepped forth from Steamheart to converse with her alone, she inclined her head, listening as a noise I have been dreading for months now came to us on the wind. The slow beating of enormous wings. I looked up and shouted for everyone else to stay on board as the manticore swooped down. And atop him, larger than I remember, was Seth, towering with an eight-foot-tall muscular frame. Sharp features, wide mouth, protruding canines, and those captivating, piercing black eyes, which now fixed upon me again, boring into my soul. He dismounted and stood, the wind whipping through his shaggy dark hair and hand-stitched leather coat. Behind him, on the clifftop, the dizzying fall below, the great scorpion lion flexed its armored, multi-plated shell and curled its gargantuan tail, ready to fling out long, sharp, poison barbs. My leg still aches from the one that penetrated. The nerve was ruptured. Part of me is dead because of this thing. Running would have been foolhardy. Steamheart was barely able to move, and on foot we would be hunted down in the forest 
Fighting him seemed near madness. He could hit us hard, and his healing would shrug off the damage we might do. If it came to that, we would die in droves. But perhaps, I thought, I could negotiate. It worked for Thomas, and it was, right then, our best chance. He rumbled, his voice carrying across the mesa we stood upon. Sir, I have come to talk, I said, holding up my rifle and placing it on the ground. I left the pistols under my coat as a last resort. If I could send a bullet through his eye to then ricochet around his brain pan, perhaps he would not heal from that. He was looking past me, towards the mutilated carcasses of the creatures he called his family. His expression was a mixture of sorrow and rage. But there was something else there. I saw he was looking at Harau as well. You are trespassing. You were warned not to venture into these lands. But we've been looking for you. To make contact, I claimed. Rooting out and showcasing the veracity in every word. Forcing myself to believe that's what I was actually hoping for all along. Am I lying? His eyes narrowed. There is truth in there, but also deceit. You didn't leave us a forwarding address, sir. How else are we supposed to talk to you? No more pageantry. Who is that? He pointed at Harau, who was slowly approaching, limping from her battleground. Twenty feet away, having exited Steamheart, were Butler, James, and Miguel. I twisted up inside. There were more people to talk and translate, but more of us were now directly in serious danger. She's our companion and protector, I said. Seth now spoke directly to Harau, with Miguel signing back and forth. You walk with them. I do. You just murdered my companions. They threatened mine. I was very nervous of Harau. While I kept my eye on Seth, declining a direct challenge, but not shying from him either, my peripheral gaze was over to the left, watching the tiger's behavior for signs of the onset of infection. So much Wendigo blood covered her fur. Simply brushing up against it would have been lethal. Where is Thomas Arlington? Seth demanded of the group. I recognize your machine. He will answer for this. He's dead. James declared. Who are you? Seth. Who were you? At this question, the two stared at one another with an unnerving intensity. What am I looking at? Something about you. Something inside you. I've got this, James. I intercepted sternly and quietly as our team stood together, dragging our aggressor's attention back to me. Yes, Thomas is dead, I declared. Again, we're not lying. You'll have to renegotiate with me, Seth sniffed the air, and looked sharply at 
Butler and Miguel. You have been to Saitash. You have seen the Yellow Forest. There was an ominous tremor to his words now. Do not lie. I can smell it upon your skin. They walked there for a time. That way is shut now. Does that leave you stranded here? Like me? She had concluded, as we did, that the world of carnivorous parasitic plants was his home. I was moments away from voicing this possibility myself and weathering the consequences. But this curious instance of reaching out had me hoping we might find a commonality. In this case, Hrau was also far from home. One second later, I realized that could not have happened, no matter the context. A foreboding change had come over Seth. He was shaking with fury. Hrau growled back. Rayoth the manticore rose up, its great head turning to survey us, its tail bristling. Wait, hold on. I can explain. You stole into my house. You severed the bloodline of my people. Why do you think I bade your leader keep these lands sacred in the first place? Can you explain that? Child! His voice was a roar now. Negotiation was over. No, I can't. Run! Raven. Oakley draws her pistol, but Harau is already diving to intercept the manticore. She barges Seth aside and grasps the beast's tail, screaming in pain as spikes enter her body, twisting it and throwing the lion down with all her remaining strength. The humans sprint back towards Steamheart, where the rest of us are watching aghast. Butler has to physically grab Delgado and drag the boy away. Seth leaps upon Harau, and her arms come free of the tail. The manticore gives chase to the humans, so Oakley stands her ground for a half second. The black tail comes around as it prepares to launch. She sends a bullet into its right eye, which explodes outwards. Rayoth tumbles to the ground, bellowing in pain and pawing at his bleeding face as Oakley dives into Steamheart and pulls the hatch shut. Seth, who is grappling her out, lets out a matching bellow and slams his hands against her paws, forcing the tiger to the ground. She pushes back, taller than him and just as strong. The two collide, tearing at one another on the cliff edge. Harau's armor hangs in tatters as she pushes him back and weaves around his blows. They circle one another. Harau has a vicious-looking gash along her now-exposed side. Her right shoulder is bleeding where he bit into her flesh. But Seth has been half-disemboweled. He holds his enormous hand over the wound in his stomach, his eyes locked on hers. Is that fear mingled with the anger? To my right, Jeremy Pine stares at these two astonishing creatures, killing one another by degrees. His face is a mask of horror. Seth holds up his enormous free hand in a gesture, partly warning, partly supplication, and calls to Brioth. The immense lion picks himself up, limps back to his master, and lowers beside him. Hrau does not attack. Her breathing has become labored. She has moved around and backed up, now standing between these creatures and Steamheart. Seth mounts Brayoth, and glaring at us with a strange ambivalent intensity in his eyes, 
takes to the air. The manticore's enormous bat-like wings spread out and thrashing. We hurt him, says Oakley. Is he gonna attack us again? Gray whispers, but the manticore wheels around and proceeds off into the sunset sky. We follow it for a while, but then our gaze settles upon the tiger. She is looking back at us, her eyes filled with sorrow. What is she doing? Pines whispers. Delgado is already out of the hatch, running towards her. No! She is looking out into the rays of the dying sun. Her paws are twitching, and she is starting to shiver and convulse. She glances back and signs something to him, then spreads out her arms, and as we watch in utter dismay, Swan dives out over the precipice, disappearing from our sight. Delgado collapses. Oakley rushes over and holds him while he screams in utter despair. We stand, survivors, unknowing of how to respond to this beacon of strength who was in our lives for just a short while, now suddenly gone. Arlington is a wreck. Gray holds her. Pines sobs over the loss of something beautiful, unique, peerless. Butler embraces him for comfort. Penrose stares over the cliff edge and into the abyss, lost for words. As I stand alone, I must steady myself upon the side of this horribly wounded machine. I have spent the past weeks within the head of this tiger and this boy, writing their story, following their paths, from discomforting, lonely lives through to some measure of a shared existence and hope for the future. If anyone understands the depths of his anguish and loss, it is us. A shroud of despair looms over our broken group. What did she say to you? Asks Gray. Delgado replicates his mother's last sign. A movement with his hands which symbolizes a figure raising from a prone position. He murmurs just one word. Live. been listening to episode 32 of Steamheart, Where the Wild Things Are, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Raven, Miguel, James, and Seth, performed by Alex Shaw. Annie Oakley and Harry Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor. Rao, performed by Maureen Foley. Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lean. Jeremy Pines, performed by Matt Wardle. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. 
Last Dawn and Apocalypse by Ross Bugden. Emotional Choirs by Carlos Estella. Mist on the Moor, Stormfront, Past the Edge, All This, Invariance, and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Thank you to our $15 patrons. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gesica, Greg Downing, Tim Wazinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mob Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. This episode is dedicated to the great Peter Mayhew. A giant, hairy friend to us all.